my name's Ed. I'm, I'm one of the curates here. Question, if you're here with a spouse, a friend, a flatmate, ask each other this question. Just turn to your neighbour. If you had to score each other out of ten, for, not for your dancing, but for your washing up skills, what would you give each other? Just take two seconds. What would you give each other? Great. Wow, okay. That's controversial. Anyone ten out of ten? Gloria again. And Julia, very good. Who's under five? Okay. Okay, interesting, isn't it? I asked the question because, to be honest, it's a bit of a sore spot for me at the moment in time, in this stage in life. You know, a couple of weeks ago, half term, I was away with my siblings and my niece and nephews. And, you know, I'd done a nice Jamie Oliver dish, casserole, I think it was, my turn to do the washing up afterwards. I do what I think was a quite a good job, get my marigolds out, brand new, lovely. do 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 job done. I retire to the lounge, put on the slippers, the fire's there, the kids are happy as Larry. And then, a couple of minutes later, there's a sigh from the kitchen. <sighs> and then there's a voice and the tone of voice that can, to be honest, only come from an eldest sister. You know the type. And it said, wafting through the kitchen, it said, does somebody need a lesson in washing up? <laughs> Ouch. Cheeky. So that was painful. But then the pain was added just this week. I was cooking another Jamie Oliver dish. Here he is. You've got to get his book, Ministry of Food. It's really old. But anyway, well used, as you can tell. Anyway, I was washing up these dishes, glass Pyrex dishes like this, okay? Turn on the tap. Three seconds later, not this one, but the other one, just utterly cracked. It splintered everywhere in my kitchen sink. I was like, whoa! I really do need a lesson in washing up. But it was out of nowhere. And actually, in our passage this morning, we're having a lesson up in a lesson in washing up. Not from Jamie, but from Jesus. Because the big lesson, of course, is that it's very possible to be very clean on the outside. On my life's Le Crusoe dish. But actually on the inside, a very different story. That's the big thing for all of us here this morning. Because we do love integrity. We rightly talk about it, don't we? Integrity, you know, that sense in which the, the front stage matches the backstage, inside matches the outside. We, we long for that. We long for it in Whitehall. So this is what Rishi said in his opening speech. Amazing. This is how he ended it. I pledge I will serve with integrity and humility. And we hear that word and we think, oh, yes, please. But it's not just Whitehall. It's within that's the call. And I, when I hear that word integrity, I always think of a time I just qualified as a lawyer, and I asked my clerk, Zach, to basically tidy up a file that was going to the legal ombudsman. I had to, had, it was a nightmare complaint against me and about a million other lawyers, and I had to send it off to the ombudsman. And I said to Zach, Zach, can you just tidy up this file, you know, dot the I's, cross the T's. And what was going on there here was I wanted to look better than I really was. And Zach, this 19-year-old whippersnapper clerk, he came back to me and he said, as quick as a flash, he said, Ed, I'm not doing that. You've got to keep your integrity. If you haven't got that, you haven't got anything. And I tell you, it was like a knife to the heart from this 19-year-old guy. And here we have a knife being wielded to our heart, not from a clerk, but from the Lord of all. A one who hands it, handles that knife well with the, all the tenderness of a heart surgeon and all the skill of a heart surgeon. 
and he goes for the heart. It's amazing. His heart is for our heart to be transformed. That's the big issue facing us in this passage. And we'll pray in just a second, but there'll be some of us here, I guess, who are just looking into the Christian faith. Thank you so much for coming. And it might be you hear this word integrity and you think about hypocrisy and all the ways perhaps you have been sceptical or even wounded, perhaps, by the hypocrisy of Christians. And if that is you, well, can I say you're in good company because Jesus has that concern too. 12 verse 1, just after our passage, we're told, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So is this, this issue of, of integrity, of inside, outside, that is an issue for my heart and I guess for your heart. It's an issue for the church in general, but of course it's also an issue for culture and society around us. You know, our council culture has this almost impossibly high standards. And when you don't meet them or when there's a disconnect, you get cancelled, you get thrown outside. But what we see here from the great doctor, the heart surgeon, is he doesn't cancel us, he cures us. So let me say a prayer and we'll dig in to this dinner time together. Loving Heavenly Father, our great doctor, the Lord Jesus that you are, Please would you come be our doctor now, diagnosing, sharing the symptoms and giving us the cure. And as John Donne once prayed, come three-person God, batter my heart, break, blow, burn and make me new. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so the first big thing is this diagnosis, the diagnosis from the doctor. Look how the story in this dinner time starts. Verse 38, the Pharisee was surprised that he, when he noticed that Jesus didn't wash before dinner. And, you know, we've learned a lot about washing up, haven't we, the last couple of years. COVID, 20 seconds, wash your hands, boom. But that is nothing compared to the stringent cleaning, hand washing, and the rest before dinner that by the first century Orthodox Jews had introduced, the Pharisees had introduced. And this was a cleaning not, well, not against COVID, but against sin. And there was a sense by then of out there is the Gentile anti-God culture and you get clean by cleaning up here. Get away from that, clean up. That's what you do before dinner, you clean up. So it wasn't physical hygiene, it was spiritual hygiene that this cleaning represented. And all the time, things were tightening up, tightening up, so that increasingly, the list of those who got outside got higher, and the list of those on the inside got lower. But you know, it's like basketball, when, when, the, when the hoop is getting higher and higher and higher, it's only the very tall who can reach that hoop. And then Jesus comes along, and he doesn't wash up. He doesn't clean up. It's as if he takes a sanitizer and instead of doing a slam dunk, he chops it in the bin. He doesn't wash up. And they are shocked. They're surprised. They are, what is he doing? To which he says, verse 39 of chapter 11, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. He is saying... You might be 10 out of 10 on the outside, but inside, well, you're not even 1 out of 10. 
You are full of greed and wickedness, he says. Because, of course, God has eyes that see the heart in a way that even we can't see our own hearts and even others can't see. And he sees it all. And he saw it for these Pharisees. And, you know, what I find so frightening about this, if I'm honest, is that this Pharisee is inches away from Jesus. He is sitting inches away just like you and your pew next to each other, inches away, and yet in his heart, he is miles away from Jesus. It is possible, isn't it, to be in church for years and in one's heart really to be miles from him. It's a frightening thing, and it's frightening for me because here Jesus is speaking to a leader in an established religion and a lawyer, experts in the law, And if there's anyone in the room for whom it feels like both barrels, it's me. I'm still a practicing lawyer and I'm a leader in the established church. And so I tell you, it's been an uncomfortable week or two as I've looked at these words together. It's been tricky, tricky. And yet, it's a tricky passage for that reason, but it's also tricky because because we need to be careful how we read this, because Jesus is... He is addressing the Pharisees, not his disciples here. We need to see that. Luke's full of different categories in his gospel. And here he's addressing the Pharisees. And over here he's talking to the disciples. And the disciples were, with all their faults and failings and doubts like we all have, they did believe in Jesus. They did want to follow him. They did want to love his ways. But the Pharisees, well, they're their complete opposite. They resist and resent and ultimately, by the end of our passage, reject him. And those are very different categories. And Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. And so, particularly those of us with tender consciences this morning, we do need to know that if we're Christians, then we have got a new heart. We have been cleaned up. The Spirit is within. And so Jesus' primary word is not woe, but welcome. We do need to hear that. So please do sit with that. And yet, and yet... We can still be rather Pharisee-ish in our hearts, can't we? The standards, the performing, the earning, the striving in all sorts of ways. It was John Newton who, who said to, to someone, you've got the spice of legalism about you. <laughs> and he said that about his own heart. And in our kitchen cupboards of our heart, there's all sorts of spices, aren't there? Of proving, of impressing, of judging, of not feeling good enough and therefore trying to make up for it somehow. Well, into that heart, Jesus speaks. He gives a diagnosis. And this is a diagnosis that goes on and on and on all our days as Christians. (laughs) This isn't a one-off appointment. Again, it was Newton who said 30 years after his conversion, in one of his letters, he described his heart as, as like the caverns of Derbyshire, going for a walk, and you get in the caves, and, and they are deep, dark caves. You find one, and that leads to another. <laughs> and his life, not as a slave trader, but as a pastor 30, 40, 40 years later, was still discovering the depths of his heart, what it was capable of. And yet, at the same time, he was one who knew not just something of the depths of his heart, but he knew that the heart of Jesus, how much more incomprehensible is that heart, that heart of grace. (laughs) And we're called to grow both, seeing our heart, but seeing his heart. 
That's what's going on here. There's a diagnosis of the heart for which we need him, we need one another. That's what connect groups are so important. But what are these symptoms? That's fine, diagnosis, fine. But, but what are the symptoms of this heart condition? Well, look how Jesus gives us. We've, we've only got a couple of woes, of, of time to, to look at a couple of woes. But look at, well, look at the first one, number 42. Uh, number four, verse 42. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give, a te- you give God a tenth of your mint, your rue, and all kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. It is almost comical. You know, I bought this in the Clapham mm, Venn Street Market yesterday, mint. Quite expensive. I'll get that back on expenses, I think. But uh, here it is. And um, it's a comical image because you can picture these Pharisees in their windowsill, box, you know, herbs on their little windowsill, and every week... They do their tithing, so they get out their ruler and think, oh, okay, 10, 10 centimetres high, I'm going to give God, ooh. That's about, yeah, one centimetre, hold on, let me get my Excel spreadsheet, let me get my ruler, yeah, that's one centimetre, God, that's yours, okay? It's almost deliberately comical, I think, the, the, the extent they are going to about mint leaves in their garden. And you know... <laughs> The Torah didn't specify give a tenth of your mint leaves. All it said was tithing was about, well, expressing your grateful, trusting heart in the provision of God. So give a tenth of your livestock and a tenth of your crops, your your food crops out there, not your leaves in your windowsill. They are getting levels higher and higher and higher. But more than that, they don't just go above God's Standards. They go above their own standards because notice that little herb, rue. I, does anyone know what rue is? I, I Google it. Who knows what rue is? It's a type of herb. Let's pretend it's this. Rue. And here they are tithing their rue. But even their own extra rules expressly said, you don't need to tithe rue. And yet here they are tithing rue. They are going higher and higher and higher in their standards. And yet underneath... They are as shallow as a little puddle in their real spiritual life. It's not devoted love. This is dutiful legalism going on for these apparently impressive people. Verse 42 again. Woe to you, Pharisees. You neglect justice and the love of God. You're doing all this stuff, but in your heart, you are deaf and dead to the very love of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. That's what he's saying to them. It's like a fancy BMW, squeaky clean, but underneath the bonnet, the engine is dead, and the petrol tank is empty. And he is showing, lifting up the lid and showing them that that's what they're like. They are neglecting this love of God and this, the corollary of that, that is justice, seeking justice in the world. It's just not on their radar. They just give their ten little bits of mint. Here they are trying to earn by their way into his good books. They are climbing and climbing and climbing, earning and striving and working themselves into the ground. They're performing. And you know, our culture and our hearts so easily just jump on the performance treadmill, don't they? And run and run and run. I think of a time in my, well, actually every month in my old law office, 
Every month, 30 of us of my team, we'd go up to the boardroom, and there would be our head of department, sort of smiling, sort of frowning. And on the spreadsheet projected up, on the Excel spreadsheet, was our monthly stats, our fee, record, our, our fee targets, our time recording. Uh, it sounds a bit like a team meeting here, actually, with these Excel spreadsheets. But this was bleak, because if you were under target, you were in red. If you were matching or above target, you were in green. And 30 of us would be sitting in this boardroom, gazing at the screen. Some of us shaking. <laughs> But here's the thing, if you were in red, you'd, you'd always get a frown from the boss, always. If you were in green, always a smile, because you'd performed. It's in our workplaces. It's also in our families, you know. This holiday, just before the washing up gate scandal, we just played, rant, uh, we just played uh, uh, racing, I hate board games and car games, but you have to for the children, don't you? And, uh, and there we were, playing racing demons. There I was, a grumpy guts. But then, thankfully, there was someone even worse than me on this occasion, my, one of my nephews, nine-year-old Jonty. And Jonty normally aces it. Literally, he aces ra uh, racing demons at car game most of the time. But this time, he was losing. He lost, in fact. And I tell you, it was like World War III. He was, he was distraught. He, he pulled back from the... It was so powerful. He pulled back from the... This is, this, you know, John, he's a great, fun lad, but he pulled back from the table and he put his arms around his knees like this and just sort of looking so sorry for himself. And Steve, my brother-in-law, his dad, said, John, T, don't worry, it's just a game. And John, T pulled back even more. And Steve said to Jonty this, he said, Jonty, mummy, we love you. It doesn't matter whether you do really well or really badly at this game. It's just a game. We love you. And eventually, Jonty let himself be loved, hugged by his dad. He was resisting it. He thought he had to perform and earn and strive to smash the aces on the deck. But it's as if Steve just chucked the cards to the side and said, let me love you. The climbing doesn't work. And so too with us in the Christian life. It's a lesson, isn't it? Day after day, week after week, month after month. Letting him love us, aside from our achievements, regardless of our performance. That's what grace is. It's utterly unique. No other worldview has it. And that's what Jesus Christ is longing that they might grasp. The climbing doesn't work. But that's one of the symptoms, climbing. And then just time for one more other. Climbing always leads to comparing. Because, you know, if I'm climbing a ladder, which I won't, health and safety, not naughty, if I'm climbing a ladder out there, what happens when you climb, I don't know, Jago's holding it underneath. <laughs> the young one goes up, the old one holds it. And, and he climbs it. Uh, sorry, I climb it. <laughs> sorry. No, I climb it. As, we're at the same level, but as I'm climbing, you can't help but look down on people below. That's what happens when you climb, you compare. And that's what's happening here in verse 42. 
3, look at that. Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues, and you love the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. You love it. It gives you an endorphin kick like nothing else when people are looking up to you and admiring you and approving of you. That's what's going on in these Pharisees' hearts. That's what pride does. If, you, if it rests on your achievement, how good you are, you, you can't help but compare with others. C.S. Lewis said that, didn't he, about pride. He said that's the heart of it. He says it is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature. You can't just be proud. You're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than someone else. Pride, the great sin, he calls it. And that is what is going on here. Needing people's approval and appreciation in a deep, deep way. I'm just reading this week an audio book. I've just downloaded Audible as an app. I recommend it. It's a free trial. But this is what I'm listening to at the moment. Matthew Perry, you know, the Friends star, Chandler. Amazingly funny man. But you've got to read this book or listen to it. it is, he is so self-aware. Let me read. I feel like I'm not enough. Most of the time, I have these nagging thoughts that I'm just not enough. If I drop my game, my Chandler, and I show you who I really am, you might notice me. But at worst, you might notice me and leave me. I can't have that. I won't survive that. It will turn me into a speck of dust and annihilate me. Oh, it is heartbreaking listening to that book, but it is so profound because he knows what his heart is like. This drivenness to perform, to put on the mask, to impress. And that can manifest itself for all of us in all sorts of ways. Workplace, family life, even church life. You know that sense of comparison. You're talking to someone and you just got your eye on the shoulder. Just if there's someone else you could talk to who's a bit more interesting or is going to just boost you a bit more. Or you hear about someone getting appreciated and you don't. Or they've had quite a few dinner invites, but who's inviting me? And you sort of stack yourself on the pecking order in all sorts of ways. And part of what's going on there is this desire to stake our sense of security and safety in how much others think of us, in how liked we are. And of course, we must honour one another and be honoured. We're made in God's image. That's the right thing. But the danger is when that spills over into, I need this. I, and not having it, I can't have that. I need it. 101 ways that looks every day. That's another symptom. And to live like that, well, it's exhausting. No wonder, verse 44, uh, uh, no wonder, verse 46, that uh, there's a feeling of burdensomeness about this. It is exhausting to be striving on that treadmill. Not just exhausting, also imprisoning. Look at the end, the last woe. Woe to you, experts in the law. You've taken away the key, that is Jesus and his grace. You've taken away and thrown it away and you've not entered and you've hindered those who are entering. It's exhausting and imprisoning. And that's what the Pharisees were like. <laughs> that's the diagnosis. Those are the symptoms. And very briefly, very briefly, wonderfully, there is a key. There is a cure. And his name is Jesus. Because what Jesus does is he doesn't just give us a washing up lesson. Here, Ed, have the marigolds. 
try harder. That's what a colleague of mine said the other day. He's got a faith that's a mashup between Hinduism, Sikhism, and humanism. <laughs> and his philosophy is to love others. I said, but what do you do when you can't love others? He said, try harder. Self-help, it just doesn't work. Jesus is the cure. I love how this dinner ends because verse 53, we're told Jesus went outside. He's dropped his bombshell and then he went outside and that is just the exact phrase Luke uses 10 chapters later to describe what Jesus did after the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper where he broke bread. He went outside and he went outside not just at the dinner place but of the city to hang on a cross. The, the ultimate inside of heaven became the outsider to bring us in. That's the love. See, gee, when we don't meet culture's standards, high, high standards, you get cancelled, you get chucked outside. But Jesus, when we don't meet his even higher heart standards, he doesn't cancel us. He cures us. He comes to us. He went outside to bring us inside, inside to the very heart of God forever and ever based not on his, our performance, but his. He gets our red scoring, we get his green, forever and ever. That is what grace is. He went outside to bring us inside. And then he also comes inside. See, Jesus is one who himself, by his spirit, puts on the marigolds. He comes inside my life and yours and cleans us up once and for all, and he continues it day after day, week after week, month after month. What a saviour. You know, Jesus, he's not a Pharisee about the Pharisees. He's not self-righteous about the self-righteous, like we might be or cancel culture might be. No, he came to seek and save the lost, even when we're lost in our self-righteous pride. That's how much he loves us. He will find us there. And he will do whatever it takes to, as Don Dunn prayed, to batter our hearts. And he will scrub us of our pride, trying to get our way to him on our own efforts. He will scrub and scrub and scrub. That's how patient a washer-upper he is. He gets 10 out of 10 for his washing up. And he never fails. He's so wonderful, isn't he? And the you know, final thing to say is, like that glass dish that broke, smashed, sometimes, sometimes in life, it feels like we are being broken and smashed. But God only wounds us and, and breaks our pride to heal us. <laughs> He's the loving, tender heart surgeon. He might smash us, but it's only to heal us. He's the perfect doctor who knows what he's doing. And it might feel this morning, in some way, you've been a bit smashed. Well, that can be the work of the Spirit. So don't fight it. But let the Lord Jesus remind you of how he loves you, regardless of your performance. And he, he's not a reluctant washer-upper. It's not a duty or a drudgery to him. It is a joy. It is a joy for him to put his get marigolds on day after day. He loves it. He loves you. He loves these Pharisees. But would they receive it? Would they receive it? That's the question. We could spend longer, but we won't.
Let's have a moment's quiet and I'll pray and we'll sing together.